Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I still don't know how to use my microphone, do I? Um, I am Nomi Key Konst. Uh, we are 39 days until the polls close on November 3rd. 39 days that will shape the world. Let's talk about voting, the election, and what Donald Trump plans on doing with the election. So Trump says, and he continues to say over and over, he may not accept the outcome of the election, a statement that even other Republicans came down on him for. Of course, we know that he doesn't control, that they don't control him, and most often he controls them. So we need to think about how bad this could get and be prepared. Let's start with some very basics. The president of the United States has absolutely no authority, none, nada, zip, nothing, to postpone or call off the election, even in an emergency that's constitutional. We have held elections through all sorts of emergencies, including the Civil War, the Civil War. The election is already underway also, voting both by mail and in person in many states. Half of the states have had early voting already underway. We finish what we started on November 3rd. Then it's finished. Now, we know the Republicans will launch a war against those mail-in ballots, even though red states like Utah have used mail-in ballot very safely and successfully for years. Maybe Mitt Romney will stand up then. No matter what, one thing that the, about the Trump team is that hypocrisy doesn't stop them. So if you can vote in person, which is what they're telling Republicans to do, if you can vote in person, please do it. Because on the night of the election, that map is very likely, this is the Republican strategy, to look like a mirage of red. Because Democrats have been telling people to vote early, to vote mail-in, and of course that's why they're attacking the Postal Service. Most states have some form of in-person voting before Election Day. So you can also look into that. Find out the rules in your state and then share them with your friends and family and your community. If you cannot vote in person, then absolutely vote by mail. But if you are in one of those Rust Belt and, and Sun Belt states where it could come down to and you can vote in person, please do so because there will be challenges. The legal forces are lining up aggressively right now, both sides. But we still have to get our mail-in ballots in to even have them fight. So keep in mind that a big win is much harder to challenge than a narrow win. That is the story of the 2000 crisis, which I'm old enough to remember, and George W. Bush's election. Al Gore was four electoral votes short of victory on election night. If we had done just a bit better in, in any of several states, including his own state of Tennessee, which he lost, then he would have been over the 270 electoral votes and the fight over Florida would have been a, a vote of nothing. It would have been a note in history. The fight would never have gotten to the Supreme Court, and those five justices would not have been in the position to elect George W. Bush. Our power here is to turn out the base. So whatever reason you want to get to the polls and organize in your community behind whichever local candidate or initiative or, you know, the general election, that is going to impact the collective voting. That is going to impact the collective turnout. The higher the turnout, the better your progressive local candidate does. The higher the turnout, the more likely we aren't going to the Supreme Court. The more we vote, the less likely that the result is close. If it isn't close, the fights over hanging chads or mail-in ballot signatures will not matter. So let's say we organize our butts off at the grassroots. Well, of course, the GOP will too. 
We need to make sure that every vote counts by making sure every vote is counted. We can help here by pushing back against the belief that we know the outcome of the election on election night. That's That wasn't always true. It is a creation of the TV age. They like the drama. So we want to slow down this rush to judgment. Let's get every single vote in and every vote counted, even if it takes days to do it. We have waited for years for this day. We have organized on the streets. We have registered voters. We've taken over legislatures. We can wait a few more days to be sure that the outcome is right. So reject any attempt to interfere with or, or prematurely halt ballot counting. We can't, you know, the cable news industry is going to want to settle this. Or they're going to want to call it for Trump and then call it for Biden later. Later. That's their game. That's how they get ratings. But what's on the line here is fascism. Now, there are other things to be on the watch for after the polls close. The counting of votes is a job of each state. The president has no authority here. His tweets do not have the force of law. The rules and timetable here are fixed into the Constitution. Whatever problems you may have about the Constitution on the very subject of our democracy is very clear that no one can meddle. The voting is, of course, for electors pledged to your candidate. Nobody, nobody is allowed to substitute electors that they like for the ones that you voted for. It is reflective of the vote. State legislatures can't do it, governors or anybody else. These electors meet in their state on December 14th to record their vote. That vote goes to Washington, where Congress gets the tally on December 23rd. And then on January 20th, at noon, the transition to the new president, hopefully, takes place. Will Donald Trump allow a peaceful transition when he loses the election? My take, he will do anything he thinks he can get away with. So everyone, all of us, need to make clear he can't get away with defying the Constitution. If you thought an anarchist jurisdiction was just a way for him to, to push back against organizers that are organizing behind Black Lives Matter, wait till you see what happens when he does not accept the results of the election. He doesn't want to see millions of people in the streets, so they're organizing now. Key people in Trump's own party are even saying that he cannot get away with defying the Constitution. But let's not rest our fate on them, as they did deliver George W. Bush and change the course of history. Every voice needs to be raised on behalf of democracy here. But again, none of this happens if the margin of Trump's defeat is large enough that there is no way he can just take it away. So organize. Make calls for your favorite candidates. Of course, have a plan to vote. Your favorite down-ballot candidates rely on high turnout, and this is not and this not going to the courts. And of course, in order to stop fascism, we need to have such high in-person turnout that the potential of this election going to the courts is eliminated. If it goes to the courts, high up on the ballot, down-ballot, all gets delayed. Your favorite DA candidate, your favorite legislative candidate, if you want to take over... I'm getting angry. Look at this. If you want to take over progressive, progressives want to take over in the legislature, it's dependent on higher turnout. So organize where you can with whom you want to organize with, make calls for those candidates. It will influence the turnout from the bottom all the way to the up. And if it's not close, we don't go to the courts. 
And we know what the courts look like right now because Donald Trump has been preparing this for the last four years. No pressure, right? Well, we have a great show today because uh, we have Dana Mills on to discuss her new book on Rosa Luxemburg. We have to learn from history. And then later we have our Feminist Friday panel with Natalie Schur and Laura Gabby. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Hopefully I won't knock over my microphone again or my coffee. I am Greek. I like to use my hands when I talk. <laughs> Basically, we need to lock everything down in the studio because I am a one-woman wrecking machine. <laughs> um, I'm very excited to have our first guest on, Dana Mills. She is the author of Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, she's also a college lecturer in politics at Hartford College at the University of Oxford. Uh Side Aside from this, she has a beautiful career in dance. Uh, she was a fellow at the Center for Ballet and the Arts at NYU and a visiting scholar at the Hannah Arndt Inst- Center at Bard College in New York. Fascinating career. Um, we should talk about that another time. But thanks for joining. I cannot um, think of a better topic for this moment, uh, given the the life of Rosa Luxemburg and the theories that she had and she pushed up against um, that were very nuanced mm. and and at a critical moment, moment in the revolution. And of course, it ended in her um, execution. Yeah. But uh, before we get to that, can, what inspired you to write this book? Oh, that's a great question. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I've become interested in Rosa about five or six years ago. I was looking into radical Jewish women and especially women who rejected um, nationalism, who rejected a very narrow conception of the state. And she was an obvious person there. And I became more and more involved. And actually, the first ever book of Rosa I bought, I lived in New York during the Trump election, and I bought it in a stall, in a second-hand stall. It was two weeks before the election, and then I found myself reading her over and over and over during the women's marches, during everything that happened in 2016-17. And um, she just became a very big part of my life. And the story of her life very much resonates with a lot of the discussions we're having today both in socialism and feminism in this intersection between both of them, and especially a kind of uh, blanket uh, refusal to accept nationalism as part of any emancipation movement. And she was a pioneering racist. She was a pioneering environmentalist. When everyone was doing Fridays for Future, I was like, yeah, she did it first. She did it better. She did it in a very kind of forceful, intellectual, robust way, but still galvanized people around their gender. And, and so she became my, my very um, close interlocutor and subject of a book. And um, just to end on like, the, the contingency of her life and our times and the way you introduced it, during the, the last Labour Party conference in the UK, they actually the chief chancellor sent an email quoting her as like, this is the policy that we're going to outline. And I kind of thought, yeah, she's coming back. She's with us. She's very timely. Uh, let's talk about her life. Um, mm. She, what, when, what was the era that for for those who are new to yeah. to her life? Um, when was she born? What was the era that she lived during? So she was born in 1871. She was a Jewish um, Polish citizen of the Russian Empire, which was then occupied. And her very first political education was in a party that rejected Polish nationalism as a teenager. And she saw the leaders of this party being executed. And uh, that kind of galvanized a very strong defense 
of dissent, freedom of expression within the left, within um, the Marxist movement that she was always a part of. She moved, uh, she did a PhD in economics uh, very early on, got her PhD in 1897, one of the first women to have a PhD at all in the world, mm -hmm. and then moved to Germany and became a leader of the German left there and became the left marker really of the SPD, which was then the biggest socialist party and also the biggest party in the international socialist uh, movement. And she was one of the first people to object to imperialism, one of the first people to object to the First World War. She spent most of her um, adult life in and out of prison for her objections to the war. And um, she was a very powerful and prolific commentator on Marx. She was one of the first people to really respond to him fully. Um, very rigorous economic political thinker ahead of her time in many ways. And um, she was both an agitator, a theorist, um, very, um, I would say, emotionally deep person. She suffered from depression. She suffered from ill health, health all her life. She was disabled. So she, she had, had a lot of things. injury, right? Yeah, yeah. And she walked with a limp. And I think one of the things that really drew me to her, I realized very early on researching the book, is that she really loved walking. And she used to kind of get to know her comrades while walking with them. And she didn't care that they saw she was disabled. And I thought that tells you something about the kind of person she was, because there was no pretense. There was no kind of, I'm trying to be someone I'm not. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of things against her. She had a lot of stakes against her. And she just mobilized for emancipation for all, which I think, again, is very timely in this moment when we're trying to think about how do we act for quality for all? How do we reject oppressions of all kinds? And it's kind of not bit by bit. We have to talk about everything all of the time. And we have to think about an overarching structure that will really allow for emancipation to happen. So, I mean, for those who are not, you know, uh, educated mm. in the nuance of Marxist theories, I mean, she was critical yeah. of Marx, but aligned with him. Um, yeah. Can you explain the differences between? Yeah. So um, Rosa took, Marx is actually one of the first theorists of globalization. And he's the person who explained how capitalism is the system that connects us all to trade, to exchange of um, money, to exchange of goods. And she took that theory one step further and explained that imperialism is the way to sustain capitalism. Because mm -hmm. the way that imperialism works is that nation states go abroad, exploit other areas of the world. At that point, they weren't even nation states. And thus kind of expand their market into different areas of the world. So she created a very important connection between imperialism, which was a big problem of her time as it is of our time, and the expansion of capitalism, explaining why hasn't capitalism come to an end. Marx, in his time, died in 1883. He thought that capitalism will get you a crisis, and then we will move to the next stage, which is communism. But he showed how the expansion of nation states into new markets actually prohibits from this crisis to happen. And so if we want to create this revolution, if we want to create this change, we have to go against imperialism, which is one of the key points. Um, and the other thing in which I think she's really important and also, again, very relevant for her time is that she was a key defender of democracy on the left. She was a key defender of exchange of opinions. She was a key defender of freedom of speech. One of her most famous uh, quotes is, freedom is always and exclusively the freedom for the one who thinks different. Hmm. So it's not about um, defending the common views. It's not about going with the flow. She always stuck out. She was always to the left of everyone. And many things helped. She was proven true. She saw the ills of the First World War. She saw the devastation it would cause. She wrote very passionately against it. 
and she lost one of her lovers actually in the war. That's a little known fact they discovered, mm -hmm. and it kind of was a huge trauma for her. But um, she really did not take a common opinion as something that would structure her thought. And I think in that, she had more nuance than Mark's opinion. Pushed Mark's thought there. And, and, and on that note, I mean, yeah. if, if I'm understanding this correctly, her, when she brought in the imperialist mindset, it, it wasn't dependent on labor in these, yeah. right, the labor forces of expansion of, of essentially colonial power, right? Exactly, yeah. So the idea is that um, why why has capitalism the West not collapsed in her time? She's writing several years after Marx has died and one of her chief um, enemies throughout her life basically says there won't be a revolution because capitalism has ameliorated tensions and we will just live in capitalism from here to eternity. We just have to give workers a bit more rights and then we'll appease them a little bit. We'll give them better working hours. We'll give them a little bit of better pay. She was insisting on revolution. She was key theorist of the revolution. And she basically said because markets can expand to areas in which the West hadn't thought that, she writes about places that she never visited. She wrote about the American South, she wrote about Australia, she wrote about South Africa. She never left Europe, she couldn't travel. She was, as I said, she was frail. She was, most of the time of her life, she was in prison. But she was able to understand that markets go elsewhere in order to sustain capitalism in the West. And that's why she says, in order to push for revolution, we need to push against imperialism. We can't allow countries to expand to new markets and saying, oh yeah, but we'll, we'll work on socialism internally which I would say then as now is kind of a feature, a weak feature of the left, saying, oh yeah, we'll just sort out the sort of internal national policy and then you'll, you'll go and fight a war and it's fine because it's different people and we don't know them and you know, there's all the racist intentions behind it. And she kind of um, untangled that very, very early on. And, and she was for a general strike? Yes, she was. Um, she saw revolutionary changes happening in strikes, both economic strikes and political strikes. And she was involved in both Russian revolutions. The first Russian revolution, she actually went over and tried to see for herself what was going on. This is the revolution of 1905. Mm -hmm. And um, she saw that education of working class people happens through a strike. So what happens is the first person who leaves the factory and then people after them, there's a certain shift of consciousness that will allow for a revolutionary change. And uh, I would say, and just looking at what's going on in the U.S. right now in the past few years, and uh, you know, massive uh, strands of strikes. This is exactly what she's writing about: how people's consciousness can change through the act of strike itself. So it's not kind of again bit by bit, but rather the process happens, starts from strike, and then can expand to a more overarching change. So um, the other thing is, she was very much against conservative trade unions of her time, sort of um, leaders who said oh, you know, we'll give you a few rights, we'll defend several sort of mini-rights, mini but we'll still keep capitalism and operate um, the way that they are. And she pushed towards kind of an overarching revolutionary change. So so why was it at the time that um, some communists uh, or, or otherwise criticized her, saying it was it was a, a naive approach? Because it seems very similar to some of the approaches we're, we're, we're taking right now, as you mentioned. Well, first of all, I think she was ahead of her time, and a lot of times people just don't see outside of where they are. Um, I think one of the things that, as an author, as someone, I'm also on the on the board of her complete works, which is a joy because it's something that keeps revealing itself. We still haven't read anything of what she's read. I mean, what she's written. I mean, I worked with several texts, it's a short biography, but we keep finding new texts. We find we keep finding new insights. For years, um, she was criticized for not having a view of policy, of not having the view of the day after the revolution. 
that is not true. She wrote a lot about that. Some of the things we're only now discovering. Some of the things haven't been translated because of influences of Stalin and others who did not really like that, did not like the defense of freedom of expression and um, censored within her archive. So actually, this is a really exciting time to be talking about because only now we're starting to grasp the fullness fullness of the archive and the fullness of the legacy that she left behind. I mean, it just, it, 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 she was she was able to take it out of a, a essentially uh, a fixed theory into the actuality of yeah. of how to how do you actually you know shift um, through strategy. I'm a lots of words mm-hmm. right now. Uh, yeah. So 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 let's talk a little bit about her execution because um, right yeah this is this is just as Hitler was rising to power. So um, it's an interesting moment because it's, it's a little known fact that after the Russian Revolution, there was actually a revolution in Germany that right. failed because it became a very kind of centrist and um, again, very kind of still imperialist and still defended uh, forces that were part of the uh, revolution also were part of the defense of the First World War. And she was always opposed to that. She was always the left master of, of all that tendency. And what happens in that there's a really interesting counter-revolutionary moment in which the kind of center right, um, the center, I would say, liberal um, liberal right, and uh, what then became the far right. So the people who were involved in her execution later became complicit and executioners mm-hmm. for Hitler. So I read this, and I think it's kind of now starting to resonate. And again, a lot of the facts are only now coming up, and you know, there's numerous Wh- research that, that I was able to feed up. Why is that? That's a great question. Because German forces have been hiding them for a long time. Because they were the because... Social Democrats, right? Yeah. So her own party, SPD, was complicit in the murder. And the SPD is still, I mean, it's a sister party of the Labour Party in the UK. It's still a large party in in German Parliament. And um, I was present in a few times when people were heckling authors for saying, you know, this has been what's going on. There's still a lot of sensitivity around that. But I think one of the points she makes, which again really resonates, and, you know, one, again, another famous quote of hers is socialism or barbarism. The moment you waver away from the left and you, you become complicit with the center right, the shift to the far right is very quick. And I mean, again, just looking at the past decade and what's going on around the world, she really highlighted that. And the tragic thing is that she paid in her life for that. She, she saw the processes from the minute that you become complicit with wars, you become complicit with imperialism. The shift from that to violence internally is a very quick. And that wasn't even the most radical thought at the time. But today, no. I mean... <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, she's still radical. That's the thing that was amazing about writing about her, is that she's still so radical and she still so much resonates. And a lot of the processes she describes, I was reading them and I was thinking, yes, this is, this is happening now. And we should read her because she really outlines how when you start giving up on certain freedoms and certain... Um, I would say just not no pasaran, like don't pass this line. Then the road from that to internal oppression, to violence towards yourself, really is a very quick one. So um, can you can you give yeah. some examples of that? The types of freedoms uh, that she you know highlighted. So first and foremost, I would say freedom of expression. Again, she is the theorist of talking about exchange of opinions, and um, she was an anti-racist. She talked about again how policies abroad might influence what's what's happening internally. But it's just she is the theorist of what democracy might entail through a process of emancipation. 
So that is um, universal suffrage. She was a pioneer of that. She wasn't a suffragette. She wasn't defending women's suffrage at the time, but she defended universal suffrage because if a working class man doesn't have suffrage or if a Canadian subject doesn't have suffrage, then there's no use in giving a white middle class woman suffrage. So it's the kind of interlinking of all these rights together. Um, but yeah, I think the kind of just connecting all the dots between all these microprocessors that happen at the same time and just saying you can't give in on any of that, which is a really hard position to take because, you know, policies are hard to maintain that way. But she really said you can't waver from, from that. Um, her execution. Uh, mm. it, it, from my understanding and my reading, it just seemed to happen so fast. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I guess maybe it's this romantic, uh, not romantic, excuse me, but like the way that cinematic executions yeah. happen there's a yeah. lead-in there's a procession there's a trial and it just and there were those it's things no, but it was quick but it didn't happen no so she was taken alongside with her closest comrade at the time Karl Liebknecht um to a hotel in Berlin the Eden Hotel where there was kind of uh, central counter-revolution forces and wait, 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 um, I'm sorry real quick just before I end, why did they take yeah. her what was the, the lead-in because she kept pushing against the central um Basically, the government that was then in force, she kept pushing against them and she galvanized um, people. She knew she was going to die. You know, it's very clear from her letters. She knew that people were after her. She lived in hiding for a very long time. From they were the moment following she was released. her? Was... There, was, there were uh, signs against her. I think it was just common knowledge. Her secretary, her, her best friend, Matilda Jacob, basically says, they're after you. You know, you have to live on the run. And she changes from hotel to hotel. The last few months of her life are very dramatic. She basically is partly at home. She doesn't see her friends or comrades and um, just organizes ceaselessly. And she knows that it's a matter of time until basically the executions will get her. And um, the execution itself basically is, that's the thing, it's very murky because it was illegal. So basically people, the kind of proto-fascists executed her, but with what we know now, with knowledge of the SPD, of the ruling party. And um, at that point, she was already kind of, she was always controversial. So some people admired her and some people hated her. Because again, far left women had, had to sustain that position. And um, she was humiliated and her corpse, she was shot from close range on the Landwehr Canal um, just before midnight on the 15th of January, 1919. Her corpse was thrown into the Landwehr Canal and that became kind of a symbol of a moment of great, really in German history. And, um, yeah, that, that was kind of very, um, I would say it's really hard to write about things like that. It's very dramatic and um, just shameful and just removing all her dignity as a human being. And that's why, you know, when she says socialism or barbarism, it is that, it's barbarism. It's treating your fellow woman as nothing but a body that you can just throw into a river. Was there public yeah. outrage afterwards? I mean, did, did, did yeah, it revive I mean, something? No, it didn't revive anything. It, I think it just basically... It, that cleared the lines and the tragic thing is a lot of people say and i i partly agree is that she probably she would be the most forceful person to galvanize around resistance and then she was gone and many other people around who were executed closely after so a lot of people right. were killed in a similar vein and i think a lot of people think and i agree that this is the beginning of basically giving into the far right in germany um there wasn't enough resistance there was public mourning she was much loved and admired by many and there were processions and you know after she got the respect and the dignity afterwards but at the time it, it just created kind of a shift in in 
what was happening politically in Germany. And she was probably the most effective person to stop that person then. She was there. Um, globally, how did people respond? To her death? That's a great question. Um, she was really, really famous and effective internationally. She was an organizer in um, the International, which was the foremost revolutionary organization of her time. And I would say historically one really a, a rare moment, moment of international revolutionary organization. And uh, there was huge mourning. Um, one of her closest comrades, Sylvia Pankhurst, there's a new biography of hers by Rachel Holmes, which is just literally a week out. She ran an editorial on her front page of her newspaper, Workers' Dreadnought, was devoted to, to the two martyrs, Carl and Rosa. Um, there was huge upsurge of grief. Lenin, who famously, there was a long debate between him and her. I kind of demystified that in the book. They were comrades. They had their ups and downs like everyone. But there was a lot of respect. It's very clear that he respected her, her thinking. And there is this kind of moment of acknowledgement of like, yes, this has happened in Germany. And from now on, the German left would be very different. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was a break really in, in the international socialist movement. And I would say it was a break in revolutionary history because she really stood for overarching revolution. And then from there on, there was a moment of, okay, we need to do things different. Then obviously there's the different international and things go differently in Russia, and then a whole new period comes into being. But that really is a moment in which everything shifts. Um, before we wrap up, I, I, mm. if you were to crystallize uh, what she stood for as as, mm. a, as a lesson for today, um, literally yeah. today, what, what <laughs> would you say? I would say no pasaran. Don't give up on racism. Don't give up on capitalism. Just yesterday. Um, in a similar Zoom to the one we're having, Palestinian revolutionary Lale Kali, Lale, um, sorry, Lale Kali was um, kicked off Zoom because she was um, speaking on with San Francisco State University. And, you know, the censorship that we're getting through big tech, through all these things that we think are so efficient for communication, this is just capitalism, this is just part barbarism. We need to be anti-racist, we need to be feminist, we need to be capitalist. We can't do it one thing at a time. We, do, we need to do that all the time. I think that's my lesson for her. Um, before we wrap up, we have a quick question uh, from our mm. chat. Did Rosa Luxemburg ever work or meet with Emma Goldman? Great question. Oh my God, that's, that's such a great question. Thank you. Not to the best of my knowledge, because I don't think Emma Goldman was uh, visiting at the time and she never made it to America, which I think, you know, it's really interesting. It, she would have, she would have learned so much because at that point, obviously, you have like a really big surge of social organization, etc. Um, but no, but there are really interesting parallels, obviously, for, for many um, reasons. But yeah, a dream meeting. Can you imagine how much fun they would have? How much fun we would have thinking about that? Sounds like a great movie. Or they could have come yeah. on the show in 2020 yeah, like, for our Feminist Friday conversations. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, before we go, I, I, there, you just you did this piece in Jacobin uh, about mm. uh, rejecting imperial feminism, and it is yeah. a review of a book that uh, just came out called yeah. Feminism Interrupted: Disrupting Power. Um, we're hoping yeah. to have uh, Lola. Yeah, hoping to have her on the show soon. Great, uh, fabulous. I know it's 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 this is exactly kind of the space that we want to dig into um, mm. on, our, on our Fridays is really helping people understand the complexity of of feminism and how uh, mm. class has been obviously extracted from it from the idea yeah. of feminism. But um, yeah. you know, folks, you can go check that out on Jackman right now. But uh, basic idea is 
reject. So, I mean, Nola's book is really important because it's an intervention specifically in British feminism, which I think mm -hmm. it's very interesting because um, there's a really big blind spot in Britain about race. There's a really big bl yeah. blind spot about police brutality. There's the kind of um, naive approach of, oh, yeah, this is going on in the States. This has nothing to do with us. Actually, in terms of statistics, Britain is doing worse in many ways than, mm -hmm. than the US, little known fact. Um, there's a huge anti-trans movement, which is hugely problematic within feminism. And Lola really pushes um, the idea, the same idea I was talking about, like you can't do things at time. And uh, she writes about abolitionism, she writes about sex work. And um, I think one of the main lessons that I took from the book and I kind of put center in, in, in my piece is exactly rejecting the white imperialist feminism. Of, you know, in the UK, it was very obvious because there were only two women prime ministers both were conservative. The second had a terrible um, resume as a home secretary of, you know, huge um, backtracks on um, immigration law on treating refugees. A lot of the things we're seeing now in the UK are basically hilarious, sustained. And you know, there was this kind of naive thing of like, oh, but she's a woman, so you know, we have a woman right. prime minister, and that's great. They put but on a T-shirt. And... Exactly, and she, she, the, famously, she wrote, she wore this T-shirt that said, "This is what a feminist looks like." And then it was discovered that, of course, the T-shirt was made in some um, sweatshops for, you know, people who are paid 30 cents an hour or whatever. And that's exactly <laughs> it, right? It's like you got to do the feminist thing, but then other people's labor pays for that and they get nothing out of it. Exactly. Um, but I think beyond that, it's, it's again about like not giving up on the most oppressed in society. And I think it's a really hard moment we're in right now. Um, all of us in different ways. You know, every country experiences it in a different way, but of really we have to defend the most vulnerable, whether it's what's going on right now, Black Lives Matter, um, ICE, you know, all of these discussions in the US, in the UK, huge anti-immigration surge once yeah. again. The new Labour leader who basically gave a nationalistic, jingoistic speech, retreating. We had a moment of hope with Jeremy Corbyn, which thought, you know, socialism was, was beyond reach, and now, there was a backtracking of like, oh yes, but we're proud to be British. And they are like, yeah, I, I read that book. It's called History of the Empire. We do not want to do that again. We've been in that, you know, I, I know about the 19th century. It wasn't great. Right. So yeah, so I think it is really a moment that we have to insist on all these things and to backtrack from them. And to really work internationally. I think one thing I learned from Rosa is like, I'm really appreciative of this conversation because we are dealing with so many relevant issues in different ways. but. In, in similar veins. I think it's just really a moment to insist on internationally. Dana, um, amazing work, great book, great piece. Check out her piece uh, on Jackman right now, Reject Imperial Feminism and her book on Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, and, and I think it's out in the US, right? It's out on the 14th of October. So it, you can pre-order and it will be with you all soon. Just don't do it on Amazon. <laughs> No, 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 no. Exactly. Buy from your local bookstore. Yes, absolutely. Um, Red Emma's actually is in in uh, uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Oh my God, you can order course. from there. Yeah. If you have a chance to ever go there in person, um, you know, maybe post COVID, it's it's a it's a dream bookstore. It's really lovely. So, mm. all right, thank you, Dana. Hope to have you back thank on. Thank you. Take care. Bye.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. This is my, I mean, I shouldn't say this because I love all of our, this is my favorite panel of the week. Uh, <laughs> mainly because, before we get started, I don't know how many people who watch uh, shows on YouTube, political YouTube, recognize the gender disparity and when gender is brought up, it's through a very narrow lens of rejecting white feminist uh, policies rather than like diving into what does it mean to be a feminist today and looping in uh, you know whether it's 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 organizing or labor or um, uh, fighting back so I'm really excited uh, about our panel because we have Natalie Shore who is a writer and researcher she is the head of research for Adam Ru- ruins everything and she also writes about history health and politics she's been featured in the nation the Atlantic BuzzFeed in these times late Jackman Daily Beast blah 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 everywhere uh, she's amazing on Twitter as well and has a very cute dog <laughs> she's on Instagram a lot and uh, and then next we have Laura Gabby, who is a carpenter, an activist, and a DSA member. She is the first woman to be elected to the executive board of Local 157, the largest carpenters local in the country. And she is the chair of New York City DSA's labor branch. That's my city. Um, you guys are on mute. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Make sure to unmute yourself if you can. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. So I, I, I want to um, start with something that's a little different, but there's a point. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it is also there's a point I want to make about this. Um, Dorsey, can we roll that uh, very creative ad that just came out? Your mission, should you choose to accept it, will be to save Texas. To do so, you must recruit an exceptional team of congressional candidates. They must be courageous, patriotic, and absolutely fearless. talks to now you, you get the idea with this then he recruits the women and i want to thank these officers for a job well done hey beth when you're finished over there texas could use your help So uh, that's what the Republicans are doing right now in terms of organizing. Um, <laughs> there's there's a lot to say about this ad, right? And, and we obviously didn't show it because it's five minutes long. But what really stuck out to me was how the Republicans have actually sh- shifted how they portray women um, to win female votes. That's really what's at stake here in, in Texas right now. They're, they're fighting over um, a key group of, of female Votes, which I think many said delivered Trump um, in other states, but a very similar uh, dynamic. But these are not your traditional, the way that they traditionally um, portray women in in the Republican Party. And yet the Democrats still do that. So, um, you know, I want to go to you guys and get your, your, your takes on that and just how the Republicans seem to be shifting how they portray women in leadership. How about Laura? I can see your face. You're like, <laughs> um, let me see. I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. I mean, I no. I think you're totally spot on. I think that there's, um, you know, I do think that there's been 
some shifts going on in um, in women stepping up into leadership more in the past ten years um, in um, in a number of industries in my industry. And I think I mean. Um, it does seem like the Republicans are attuned to that in some way or are trying to, um, you know, trying to run with that. Um, and I would, I mean, I would agree with you that the Democrats are very much, uh, you know, kind of stuck in a rut um, that feels very much like still doing politics the way they were throughout the 2000s. Um, and that, you know, uh, yeah, that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> what do you think, Natalie? Um, I mean, I think that this is a point that's been made a lot. I think that Republicans are very interested in cultural power. Uh, they have so much institutional power right now. Uh, they control uh, at least part of all three branches of government. Uh, they obviously have a very stronghold on capital power, serve the donor class. Uh, but I do think that they feel um, a lot of resentment over the fact that liberals control uh, TV, movies, pop cultural conversation, uh, mainstream media, at least as far as pop culture goes, tends to be liberally skewed. Uh, and I think that this is probably catering to that in some way. Um, you know, I mean, the winds are changing in terms of the way that uh, people talk about women in mainstream cultural conversations. And I think that they're trying to play into that. I mean, it seems like it's very much like a lean-in kind of uh, Shel Sandbergy type of feminism, you know. Oh, look at it. There's a businesswoman. I mean, one of them was like athlete. Like that. <laughs> She's an athlete, so let's elect her. It, it's it's mind boggling. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit uh, and 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 talk about this moment, this crisis, and obviously we're in the middle of, a, of an election and COVID, but. Uh, when you look at the, the industries, the frontline industries that have been uh, affected by COVID quite a bit, you know, you've got nurses, whether it's financially affected or actually physically affected uh, their health, nurses, female-led industry, majority female, um, teachers are now putting their lives at risk, being forced to go into schools, uh, majority female, and, and flight attendants, an industry that is completely being ravaged in this week alone, uh, you know, flight attendants and and the airline workers are facing unemployment. Tens of thousands of airline workers could be laid off in October on October 1st if federal aid to airlines is not renewed by Congress because air travel is, of course, down by 70 percent because of the pandemic. So um, folks are talking about a general strike. And I mean, there's a lot of talk about a general strike, but there needs to be real action items here. Laura, you know, you're, you're involved in DSA, you are involved in labor, you're a labor leader. Uh, where would you start if, if, if these are some of the major industries that are being affected on the front lines? Um, where would you start in terms of a general strike? Um, I mean, that's, that's a huge question. I, uh, I love it, though. I love this question, I have to say. I, I love talking about strikes. Um, I mean... There's no, there's no getting around it. I think that, you know, I think that just calling for a general strike right now, um, it's, you know, it's, it's unrealistic in the sense that, you know, we haven't seen something like that before um, in this country. Um, we have, you know, we've started to see like the reemergence of um, of strikes, starting with the West Virginia teachers strike in 2018, and even before that, the Chicago teachers strike um, was sort of like the precursor to a lot of this activity. Um, but you know, I think 
I think we still have a ways to go. I mean, I think honestly, um, it's, you know, I like focusing at the at the shop floor. It might seem sometimes unglamorous talking about general strike. You know, um, that's that is the glamorous thing to talk about. That is, I, you know, I'd much rather be talking about these large scale strikes. Um, but I think it it really does start at the shop floor in terms of, um, of learning how to organize, um, just like the very basics, learning how to organize, learning how to move your coworkers into action together. Um, you know, we can't get there um, without, without starting with like the basic building blocks. And I think um, in so many places we're still there. I think that the, I think the teachers and nurses are ahead of um, a lot of the labor movement in that sense. Like there's already been um, really, really strong long-term organizing going on, and we're starting to see the benefits of that, which is great. Um, and I guess the other thing, the last thing I'll say too, is that to you know, if you're inspired by the idea of a general strike, um, you kind of you have to be in it to win it. So you have to be, you know, you wh whatever your entry into the labor movement is, you have to be involved in it in some way, whether that be, um, you know, I'm. I'm a rank and file carpenter myself um, and a, a big advocate of getting involved as a rank and file member, but you know, be that as rank and file organizer, doing strike support, um, finding ways to support um, labor actions going on. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> Natalie, I mean, with that being said, okay, so so we have a, uh, thank goodness, a resurgence in the labor movement and um, membership is up. And of course, DSA chapters are exploding across the country. We, we know where we are. But there is this, as Laura just said, like there, there's a process of learning how to organize. Are we moving quickly enough? <laughs> I mean, at this moment, we're, we're 39 days away from an election in which it could be contested, even if it's very clear what the outcome is. Um, I don't know. What do you think, uh, Natalie? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's a difficult question. Um, you know, as far as flight attendants go, uh, having read a lot of headlines about flight attendants this week, uh, I found myself feeling very thankful that their leader is Sarah Nelson, uh, someone who, you know, is a really robust progressive leftist who uh, is largely credited with having helped stop the last government shutdown by suggesting that, you know, maybe the flight attendants would use their labor power to stop going to work, which would ground all the planes, which would, you know, set off a catastrophe that a lot of the Republicans were not willing to, uh, a road that they were not willing to see where it led. Um, and so I think that, you know, overall, um, the people who are on the left, who are progressives, who are involved in the labor movement, I think have an important role to play. Um, personally, I'm not a unionized worker. Uh, so, you know, as Laura mentioned, I think that my role is more, um, you know, supporting workers who are able to withhold their labor effectively in any way that I can, whether that's through strike support, whether that's through, uh, you know, signal boosting or anything else I can do, uh, and just being part of the movement generally, or, so that when, you know, a call goes out uh, to be able to mobilize, to be able to get feet on the ground. Um, in 2016, so I, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who's working on a, a Senate race, and uh, they they called for advice on how to move female voters, uh, and it was quite an education. Somebody very experienced in politics, extremely experienced, mm -hmm. and they were really having difficulty finding people who specialize in messaging to female voters. And 
the first question was, well, should we just like lean into uh, being pro-choice? And I said, no. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, you should lean into the economic conditions of America right now. Like, you don't need to make it about... And, you know, we went into to, to, to more detail about this, but um, it did raise an interesting question, which is, you know, he said he, he didn't understand necessarily uh, the idea of of what the, the Hillary campaign complained was white women um, delivering Trump, which has actually been debunked a bit um, in that this was not historically... He, she was targeting upper-middle-class white women who thought she thought she could move to voting for her um, in that they were upper middle class, usually voted with their partner. And if their partners uh, did not like Hillary, it was likely that they weren't going to vote. You know, they were going to break away from their partner's mm-hmm. vote. Um, add to that, that's why she leaned, you know, she really uh, expanded on on the Access Hollywood tapes. So now we're in this moment where you have Joe Biden, who has um, his own his own issues with women. Uh, they're voting in line with Joe Biden right now, but this whole conversation about, you know, what it means to win the female vote is still existing, at least for Senate candidates all across the country. So I want to ask you guys, um, what do you think Democrats, you know, Main Street Democrats, even progressive Democrats, men who may not understand uh, what it means to to, to connect with women, uh, mobilize women, what do you think should be prioritized? I mean, Laura, you, you know, you organize and you're in a, in a male dominated industry, too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> men men trying to connect with women. Let's see, that's <laughs> or or even women. I mean, it's crazy. Um, these are women operatives too that don't seem to understand. Don't, yeah, they don't seem to get it. I mean, um, I I agree. You know, I agree totally with you that the um, the economy is is huge right now, and that's absolutely a women's issue. You know, there there are tons of women who've been laid off. Um, you know, there's a lot of women hotel workers. Hotels have been hit extremely hard um, with the pandemic. Um, we we all know that women, you know, women get paid less than men. So just right there, it's obviously a women's issue. Um, I mean, I don't think this this is me personally, but I don't think that there's any quick fix in terms of like, there's not, you know, a simple messaging solution in the next 40 days that you know that is going to fix what we need to fix politically in this country i think that um you know progressives and and people who want to involve women more in politics and like i think we really do need to start looking to other forms of politics um but in it's probably no surprise but like like labor organizing i think people don't realize that when you know when you have a major labor upsurge or action um it spills out into more than just the workplace so it's not just like the west virginia teachers or arizona teachers were fighting you know they're not just going to fight a narrow shop floor battle it's going to spill over into um, into more civic engagement overall. It means that they're going to be um, turning out to vote most likely in higher numbers. And I don't think that that's often um, I don't think that's being thought about in, you know, a lot of Democrat strategy rooms or anything. I think, you know, I think they think it's about a quick soundbite and, um, you know, and that's that. So we'll leave it there. And they're getting paid a lot of money to, to come up with that soundbite. That may, yeah. may not be effective. Um, what do you think, uh, Natalie? Yeah, I mean, I think overall the lesson that the last few years have taught us uh, is that for the most part, women vote 
according to how you'd predict they would uh, by class as opposed to by gender. Um, tend to vote with the men of their cohort, uh, you know, depending on education and income, uh, with some exceptions. And I think for the most part, uh, when thinking about how to reach women voters, uh, the key is that, uh, you know, obviously speak to their material interests. And when you're doing that, realize that they are disproportionately in charge of carols that uh, despite it being 2020, they are going to have disproportionate responsibility for kids, uh, for housework, and that those roles aren't paid, uh, and that they are also uh, paid lower wages than men. And so they kind of have this double bind, um, you know, working for less money while also juggling uh, unpaid care roles that are absolutely critical to society. So I do think that emphasizing, uh, you know, Carols. What does it take to make sure that a family can uh, sustain itself uh, healthily without uh, a super high salary? I think that, right. you know, that aspect of messaging is important to emphasize, but you don't have to, you know, do it in pink to make sure the ladies can hear you. Uh, I think <laughs> that you can emphasize those things in the same way that you can and should uh, anytime you are delivering a message about social democracy and that that'll be an important part of it. Right. And of course, um, I mean, it's, it's, it, the numbers aren't really in in any way, but it's much, much worse with COVID. And during the lockdown, it was, it was mm -hmm. horrible for women um, across the board. Natalie, Laura, thanks for joining. Uh, fun panel went by super fast. Hope to have you on again uh, to talk more Thank and delve you. into some more of these issues. But uh, you can find their work. Uh, Laura Gabby is a leader of the Labor Caucus at uh, the New York City DSA. And Natalie Shore, of course, she's writing everywhere, as I said. Uh, but she is also the head of research for Adam Ruins Everything. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Tuesday, 3 Eastern to 4. Uh, make sure to plan, to organize, make those calls to your favorite local candidates. Uh, if you don't want to make calls to Joe Biden, I hear you. I get it. Uh, find someone that you care about who is who is up for election right now. Uh, doesn't have to be in your district. we got to keep that energy up so this doesn't go to the courts. That's the biggest uh, that's, that's the biggest thing to think about right now. Having lived through 2000, as many of you did it who can remember, uh, that was drawn out. And the, the consequences were, of course, multiple wars, um, a downed economy, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Shout outs to Duke of Bread. Oh, thank you. Nomi is one of my favorite leftists. Glad she started this show. Thank you for supporting the show. Uh, make sure to kick that like, 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 subscribe. Dimitri OG, clearly a Greek. Yuro uh, or Suvlaki. I don't eat meat. Um, but when I did eat meat, uh, I, uh, you know, it depends on the day. I used, I like vegan souvlaki, or ve vegan euros. They have those, you can't really find them in the U.S., but you can find them in Athens. There's a big vegan movement. Um, it's amazing. But, I don't know. I guess a euro. I, I might, uh, these questions. I don't eat meat. I haven't eaten meat in like 15 years. Adam Paganini, uh, thanks for the shout out. Unfortunately, this is his line. Unfortunately, Crystal Ball is, uh, is uh, fomenting voter apathy and rising, resulting in lots of her leftist viewers vowing to not vote for Biden. We need massive turnout. Why do you think she's doing this? I don't know. Um, I think a lot of people are frustrated. Crystal's a good friend of mine. A lot of folks are frustrated uh, with with the 2016 primary or 2020 primary. I lived through this in 2016. Um, 
I think the the folks who are staying out, it's a much smaller number uh, than 2016, but leftist media has expanded. And I will say, you know, we're making a really tough call here. It's not super popular. It's not super edgy. It's not super clickbaity to say we need to get our voter turnout out. But I don't want to look back in February uh, when our cities are taken over by militarized police and say, if only I could have made the case for why turnout needs to be expanded so that it doesn't come down to a few votes in Wisconsin. I mean, that's ultimately what happened in 2016. You had depression of different voting groups across the country and Trump depressed some of those voting groups by, you know, issuing division. Um, but of course, Hillary Clinton did not expand. Her campaign did not expand um, and invest in those key states. Hopefully we have learned those lessons. But let me tell you something. I'm not depending on Joe Biden. I'm not voting for Joe Biden. And I'm not depending on him to mobilize these key demographics. What I'm saying here is we don't want to look back in February and see our friends to the left and our friends to the right imprisoned because they spoke out. Listen to that story of Rosa Luxemburg. Hopefully it doesn't get to that point. But, you know, these are the things that we have to seriously think about. Were the clicks worth it? Was the extra $2,000 you made uh, in ad sales worth it? That's what I'm thinking about. So after January, hopefully we'll be talking about expanding our organizing to pressure Democrats to do the right thing. Um, but we have to think strategically. And, and you should also ask, I mean, exactly that question. Uh, why... Why is it about not voting? What what do you get out of that? What do you get out of not voting? What do you get out of that? Seriously. Uh, thanks to Harvey Kane, everyone for mixing it up in the chat room. And big thanks to Bob, the moderator, for keeping the chat room honest. Thank you guys. Have a great weekend. And I will see you on Tuesday.